Joan Rivers, two weeks before she died, did an interview with her daughter, Melissa. And she was talking, reflecting uh, upon life and talking about the things that mattered the most to her. And Joan Rivers took out her day timer and she pointed to her day timer and she said, this is the key to life. Opening it up and every page being full. Every page of her day timer being full. Now you hear that and you go, oh, that's ridiculous. Come on, we're, we're better than that. But don't get hung up on the day timer. What was beneath the surface for Joan Rivers? Beneath the surface for Joan Rivers was a deep-seated, deep-rooted need for approval. It was a deep-seated need to be wanted. It was a deep-seated need to be significant in the lives of others. And she said, the key to my life is having every page filled. And if it's not, she would be devastated. And every single person in this room at some way, at some level can relate to that. A deep-seated need in our hearts and our lives to be needed, to be wanted, to be valued, to be significant, to be valued and worthy. We struggle with this inside and outside of the church, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, we struggle with remembering this every single day, and it's something that just didn't start the last 40 years in what we call the good old days. This is something that has been plaguing us from the beginning. This has been something that has been plaguing humanity from the very beginning, the deep-seated need to be wanted, to be approved, to be significant, to be valued. And how do we know? Because here, in starting in verse 15, Paul, in light of everything he has told the Ephesian church, what is Paul's greatest fear? Paul's greatest fear is that they will forget it. In verses 1 through 14, Paul tells the Ephesians church that in Christ you have been approved, in Christ you have been adopted, in Christ you have been made righteous, in Christ is your only hope. And then in verse 15, he starts in this prayer and he says, this is what I pray for you. Because life is hard and life is difficult, the greatest thing you will be plagued with is forgetting this and finding and relocating your hope in something else finding your value in something else, finding your significance in something else. And he says, I pray this for you. I pray this for you. And I want to look at briefly two things in this prayer that Paul prays on behalf of the church. He wants them to remember two things in light of them being in Christ. He wants them to understand worth and he wants them to understand power. In verse 18, What does he say? He says that I pray that your eyes of what? Your heart are enlightened. That sounds weird, right? The eyes of your heart. And what Paul is doing here is he's personalizing the heart because Paul understands that the heart is deceptive, that the heart is wicked, that your heart, your heart will struggle to believing that these things are true that I've told you about your standing in Christ. And what he does, he personalizes their heart and he says, as if your heart had eyes, I want them to be opened. 
and I want them to be enlightened. This concept we've seen throughout the Bible, the, uh, the idea of your, the eyes of your heart being enlightened is synonymous with the idea of having full faith and full belief and full knowledge. So when the, when Paul says, I want the eyes of your heart to be enlightened and to be opened, he says, I want your heart to believe and to believe well. Full faith, full belief, and full knowledge. And what are the two things that he prays that they know? I want your heart to know two things. The first thing, he pleads that we would know our worth. We see that in verse 18. He says, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. He wants us to know our worth. How do we see our worth there in that one verse? I want you to know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Everywhere else in scripture, when we see the word inheritance, what does it make us think of? It reminds us of our poverty, right? Anytime we see inheritance, actually we see it earlier in this chapter, we are reminded that we are poor, we're the pauper, right? And we receive from God this incredible inheritance, but it's not talking about us right here. Whose inheritance? It's not our inheritance. It's God's inheritance. It's God's inheritance in the saints, which is you, the church. What does that mean? How can that be? Are you telling me that God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the God that has everything, that God who owns a cattle on a thousand hills, the God who is perfect, has an inheritance? Yes. That's what makes it so beautiful. That God, the God of, that created the heavens and the earth, the God who owns a cattle on a thousand hills, looks down on you in Christ and says, you are my inheritance. You are my prized possession. He wants them to understand their worth in Jesus Christ. That he looks down upon his church, those that have been called out in Christ, and he says, that is my prized possession. The God who has it all, the God who doesn't need a thing, looks down upon you and says, you are worthy, you are valuable. The church in Ephesus obviously struggled with this continually, wondering, would I, we ever see hope? Would, are we valued? Are we worthwhile? Is this all worth it? This whole Christianity thing. And Paul wants them to be reminded, yes, it is worth it. You are a child of the king. You are his prized possession. You are of great worth and great value. You are the very inheritance of God. Don't ever forget that. That is who you are. And Paul pleads, I pray that your heart would know that. That when God looks at you, that he sees his prize, that he sees the very bride of Christ. Think about what this looks like in the life of a church when we get this. Could you imagine what a church looks like when we do not see each other for what we see on the surface. But could you imagine a church that when we saw each other, we saw each other as the very inheritance of God? What does that church look like? Does it maybe for a second change our criticism? Does it for a second change the way we look and view each other? 
I hope it does. See, this brings life. We talk about what are the words that bring life to a community? What are the words that bring life to a church? See, anybody can be critical. It's not hard to have the gift of criticism. It's hard to have the gift of affirmation. And the reason it's hard is it it comes from another source. It comes from a church remembering that first and foremost, their affirmation and their approval come from God in Jesus Christ. And when a church gets that, that's a beautiful thing, seeing it worked out. It brings life to a church. It brings life to our children. It brings life to our friends. It brings life to our spouses. It brings life to those who are struggling, words of life, words of hope, words of affirmation that are rooted in our affirmation from God. He pleads that that we would understand true worth and true value. But he not only pleads that they would understand their worth, in verse 19, he pleads for them to know power, real power. What does he say in verse 19? And what I pray that your hearts would be enlightened to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power. Now, Paul here is using over-the-top language. In fact, in the Greek, it's where we get the words mega and dynamite from. So basically, what Paul is saying is, I want you to know the immeasurable mega dynamite power of God. Now, if somebody somebody was to come to you and say, hey, you got to meet this guy. He is mega dynamite powerful. You'd go, okay, chill, chill out. And that's the point. See, everybody understands power at some level. It's what we strive for, right? We strive for power in our homes. We strive for power in our relationships. We strive for power in our workplace. We strive for power in our culture, in our society. We even strive for power in the church. The Ephesians were no stranger to power. If you were part of this church at this time, you had probably seen two or three of the uh, greatest, although infamous, but greatest leaders maybe in the history of our world through the Roman Empire. They understood power. And Paul says, no, 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 no. You haven't seen anything. You haven't seen the immeasurable, mega, dynamite power of God. You haven't seen it. You forget it. That's what I want you to know. That is real power, not what you see on the surface, but the immeasurable great power of God. That is what I want your heart to know. And he goes on to say, how do we we know this power? It goes on to say, it's that power in verse 20 that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. It's resurrection power. It's the power that brings dead people to life. That's power. A dead person can't do anything. And Paul says, no, that's real power. When you see dead people rise from the dead, when you see dead people made alive, that's power. And going back to verse 19, what does Paul say? That resurrection power, that power is in you. That is phenomenal. You imagine, once again, a church that understood real power and the fact that that real power, the power of the resurrection, the power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power at work within you doing what? That made you raised from the dead, that made you come alive. That power in you 
I don't know if our minds will ever be able to comprehend the power that we possess. And the reason I don't know if we'll ever be able to comprehend it this side of heaven is because every day we struggle to find some other type of power, to attain some other power that on the surface looks great, but compared to the power that raised Jesus from the dead, they will never compare. And he says, that power, that power is in you. Nothing can stop this power. And in verse 22, it says what? And that Jesus, he goes off, basically. And, and Paul says, not only has Jesus been raised from the dead, he's been seated at the right hand of the Father. And he says, all power and dominion are under his feet. And he's doing it all for who? For you. In verse 22, it says, and he put all things, all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. Like I said, we're not just some entity. We're not just some organization. We are the very body of Christ with Jesus as our head. We are his body and he gives his church power. That's why Jesus is able to make audacious comments like in, in the gospel of Matthew, I will build my church and what? and the gates of hell will not prevail. The only reason Jesus is made, able to make audacious comments like that, that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail, is because he knew that his church would have resurrection power. We push against darkness in our culture. We push against darkness in our communities and in our homes and in our lives and in our society, not just hoping that it'll all work out in the end. We push against the darkness because we know how it all will end. We know that the church has a power that is otherworldly. We know that the church has power that raised Jesus from the dead. That power is in you, and that power is in our church. And when a church gets that, I say watch out, because that is an exciting church. That is a church that is on the move. That is a church that will bring about the renewal of all things here in South Florida and beyond. And that is an exciting place to be. It's resurrection power and it's shocking power. Think about it. Shocking resurrection power. Is there anything more shocking than the resurrection? That a guy was dead on Friday and alive on Sunday. That's the power inside of you. So therefore, our power should be shocking. The way we love people should be shocking. The way we give to our church and our ministry should be shocking. The way we sacrifice should be shocking for others. Our selflessness should be shocking. The way we care for the poor and the orphan and the widow should be absolutely shocking because there's power in you that is shocking. The church should be the most shocking place in the world. There is nothing normal about you. There is nothing normal about a church. There is nothing normal about the power that resides within you. It is absolutely shocking because Christ's love for us was shocking. As I said previously, the church in Ephesus was accustomed to knowing kings of great power. If you lived in the Roman Empire at the time, you, you saw greatness. You saw great leaders. You saw the greatness of the empire at work all day and every day. And so they knew kings. They were accustomed to knowing kings with great power. But I want us to think for one moment what Paul means when he says in verse 19, by the word immeasurable. 
Because I get greatness and I get power. But when he says this king, his power is immeasurable. He's saying I can't quantify it. He's saying I can't, there's nothing that I can actually compare it to. What, it, what was so special about this king? What was so special about his power that Paul says, I can't even measure it. I can't even compare it. You see, the one thing they did know were kings, but they've never seen a king like this. You see, they knew kings that used their power to expand their kingdom and gain their inheritance by taking the lives of others, by taking the lives of their subjects. But this king, Jesus Christ, expands his kingdom and expands his church and gains his inheritance by what? Taking his own life. That's power. What Paul is saying, anybody can take other people's lives for the sake of theirs. That's not real power. Real power is laying down your own life for the sake of others. True story, a fishing trip to Alaska um, several years ago, there was three adults and one of the adults decided to bring their 10-year-old son. Well, when the helicopter was landing on a, 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 a sandbar, they didn't realize the rocks that were underneath the ice. And one of the pontoons of the helicopter was pierced, and when they didn't realize it, as, as they were fishing, the, the pontoon was filling with water. So when the helicopter took off, it immediately crashed into the water. And the current was so strong, but the, the, the three adult men were strong enough to swim against the current, and when the father looked back, what did he see? He saw his 10-year-old son was not able to make it against the strong current. And so as the two other adult males swim to shore, the father, what does he do? The father who has the power to save his own life returns and sweeps up his boy. And they grab onto a tree branch, both of them. But the tree branch begins to break because of their weight. And the father makes one of the most courageous decisions. The father looks at his boy and he puts him on the tree branch and he says, son, wait here. You will make it. Wait here. And the father, before the tree branch breaks, lets go, and he is carried out to sea. Don't tell me for one second that that father did not have power. Anyone that willingly lays down their life so that someone else can live, that is power. That is true power. And that is the power of your king, Jesus Christ. Do you know this king? Do you know this one that has power that is immeasurable? Power to willingly lay down his life so that you can live. Lay down his life for you, his prized possession. This Jesus, this king, he is the head of the church. That is good news.